0: Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode we're finishing Alfred Loomis's The Cruise of the Hippocampus with chapter 11. Chapter 11, concluding thoughts on sailing. The blood of hundreds will be on your head if you make this cruise, said a friend of mine when I was discussing the possibilities of taking an auxiliary sailboat to the Pacific. That was a year ago, before the delightful little hippocampus had sailed into my life. "'How's that?' I asked. "'Because you don't know anything about sailing, and you'll be fool enough to say so, and the first thing you know all others who are as ignorant as yourself will be following you to a watery grave.' "'But,' I protested, "'there doesn't seem to me to be anything difficult or dangerous in the plain, unvarnished sailing that I intend to do. I'll have a motor to get me out of the tight places, Oh, that's all very well, said my friend, but it takes at least five years of experience to make a yachtsman. What do you know about scandalising a mainsail, for instance? Well, not a thing, I cheerfully admitted. A mainsail is the last thing I'd want to scandalise. But if I were put to it, I bet it wouldn't take me five years to get the knack of it. You're hopeless, said my friend, and there the matter rested. Advice on yawls. Having learned that it was foolhardy of me to set off in a sailboat without prior experience in sailing, I next sought advice on the type of rig that is best suited for tropical cruising. The opinions delivered were many and varied. One man, who had a sloop to sell, pointed out that Josh Slocum sailed around the world in a sloop, and I hadn't the wit at the time to know that Captain Joshua, after one or two painful experiences, converted his sloop into a yawl and sailed for 42 days on end without touching the wheel. Another man knew where I could get a bargain in a Long Island 30-footer, which had the advantage that in a sudden squall it would lie right over on its beam ends without capsizing. This bargain attracted me enormously until I was informed that cooking is difficult aboard a boat that's likely to lie over on its beam ends every minute or so. Then I got into the hands of experts who assured me that a schooner is absolutely the only thing for long-distance cruising. Very well, said I. Bring on your schooners. Schooners for all hands. It appeared that I had the wrong kind of schooner in mind, and when it penetrated my consciousness that a schooner yacht is a vessel with two whopping big mainsails, I lost some of my enthusiasm. This was to be a pleasure cruise, not a punishment. One man suggested catches. He knew where I could buy a fine big catch named Typhoon that had sailed across the ocean and back. When he named a price of $6,000, I contented myself with borrowing Typhoon's taffrail log. Briggs... Barks, Brigantines and Barkantines being out of the question, my choice seemed to be narrowed down to yawls, and I paid a friendly call on an editor to ask him what he knew about yawls. He knew a lot about them. Theoretically, he said, the yawl is the ideal type of sailboat for long or short distance cruising. Everybody who has never sailed a yawl will tell you that. However, I've yet to hear from a man who has sailed one, and my personal opinion is that actually a yawl is the worst rig for any kind of cruising. The mizzen mast is stepped above the waterline, and if that doesn't kill a yawl as a seaworthy proposition, I can give you a half a dozen other objections that are just as valid. Well, I said, I guess I just won't take a cruise. So I went out and bought the yawl hippocampus, which is as seaworthy a packet as ever sailed to the Spanish main. Advice on masts. When the hippocampus was going into commission in New Rochelle, I learned the most discouraging things about her. In particular... Her masts were too light for cruising in the southern seas. What you want, said a neighbourly yacht owner, a shorter, thicker mast that will stand the shock of a sun squall. If I were you, I'd take those spars out and place them with sticks of at least two inches greater diameter. That six-inch mainmast is all right for protected cruising, but down where you're going, it doesn't pay to take chances. People talk of taking masts out of other people's boats as though they were lead pencils. So I held the advice in abeyance, not having the money nor the time to refit the hippocampus with heavier masts, and one morning, about three months later, it was returned vividly to my memory. We were lying in Kingston Harbour, Jamaica, and at about ten o'clock all hands were getting at last forty winks of beauty sleep when we heard sounds of a small boat being rowed in circles around the hippocampus. Presently, a salty voice smote the calm morning air, said the voice, Now, here's a boat that must have been built especially for tropical cruising. Most yachts that come down here from the States have masts that are much too heavy. Hers are of exactly the right proportions. Well, good morning, I said, poking my head through the companionway. How'd you make that out? Up north, they told me that her sticks were entirely too light for this region. Not a bit, said the admirer of Hippocampus. In the short, choppy seas we have down here, both in harbour and outside... The yachts with heavy spars shake themselves to pieces in no time. If you have light masts, you can always reduce sail to save them. If your spars are heavy, you can never avoid that incessant pound, pound, pound that shakes the heart out of you and your yacht. Well, thanks, said I. There's a certain savvy yacht owner up in New Rochelle who'd like to correspond with you. My humble opinion of yours. My experience in sailing before the cruise of the hippocampus was confined to a short run in a sailing dory in Newport Harbour and a 70 mile sail in a sloop in Bermuda. Consequently, I do not pose as an authority in sailing matters. However, it is my humble opinion that the yawl is the ideal type of rig for the long distance work. As compared with a schooner, she has one heavy sail instead of two, and this is desirable when it becomes necessary to lower on the approach of a sharp squall. Moreover, a seagoing yawl can be built smaller than a schooner, which is a decided advantage when cost of operation and ease of handling are considerations. Between a sloop and a yawl there is no comparison, because the yawl has all the advantages of the sloop and has, in addition, the jigger sail, which is her distinguishing characteristic. This jigger then permits one to trim sheets so that the yawl virtually steers herself. It may be said for the schooner that her sail area is reduced in proportion to the yawl's spread of canvas when double reefs are taken in both sails. Nevertheless, it takes time to reef sails, and time in small quantities is often of vital importance. Perhaps it will be thought from my constant reference to them that I have squalls in the brain. My preference of boats which handle easily is not based on a fear of sudden puffs of wind, however, but on an inherent love of leisure. When three or four men embark on a long cruise in a small boat, the novelty of steering or trimming sheets wears off, and sailing becomes a business. It never becomes monotonous business because the sea and the weather are constantly changing, and it is always as much fun to put to sea and stay there as it is to put into harbour and stay there. Business though it is, sailing should never denigrate into a duty or a hardship and the way to keep it out of either class is to arrange that all hands have their regular sleep. On a yawl, this arrangement consists of setting the sails at night so that one man may stand his watch alone, regardless of what comes in the weather line. If it is blowing hard at sundown, all hands may lower the mainsail before the night routine starts, and the man on deck can be satisfied that he can handle unaided any situation that may arise throughout his watch. The same applies in squally, unsettled weather, when it is calm one moment and blowing furiously the next, the jib and jigger are left standing and while during periods of calm they do not slat about annoyingly or dangerously, they present sufficient sail area to carry the boat along nicely when a stiff breeze springs up. Only with the yawl rig can this ideal combination of enough canvas for headway and not too much for safety be effected. Weather in the Caribbean While on the topic of weather, I may as well answer the burning question that has often been asked me with respect to sailing in the Caribbean in the summer season. Isn't it a bit too hot for comfort in the tropics? The answer is yes and no, and depends on the kind of clothes you see fit to wear. If you want to dress yourself in a full consignment of garments from stiff collar and necktie to spats and patent leather shoes, it is too hot but if you are contented with a bathing suit by day and a flannel shirt and khaki trousers to slip over it at night, it is not too hot. Hardly a night passed when hippocampus was south of the Tropic of Cancer that the warmth of a blanket wasn't welcomed in our bunks or that we didn't relish the extra protection of a slip-on sweater during the midwatch. I may add that I have never come nearer to freezing to death than on the afternoon when off the south coast of Cuba a sharp rainstorm caught me on deck with all my clothes off. My shipmate Squibb, who was in the same predicament, stuck it out, but at the risk of flooding the cabin, I dived below and got myself into a full suit of sweaters and oilers. Ten minutes later, of course, the day was as hot as it had been cold, but there was always the recourse of a cool dip over the side. The friendly sharks. "Oh ho, says the incredulous northerner. Did you dive over the side whenever the spirit moved you? Well, strictly speaking, we did not, I have never seen a shark bite a man, and I have never seen a man who has seen a shark bite a man, but I have heard of a thousand men who have seen a man who saw a shark bite a man. That's rather complicated, but it's enough for me. As we counted in a previous chapter, I had an experience with a shark that made me still more wary, but even that did not keep us from trailing circumspectly from the bumpkin on occasion. The day we landed at Los Indios on the Isle of Pines, Cuba, I so far forgot my habitual caution as to dive overboard to carry a mooring line to a wharf jutting out into deep water. I clambered safely up, secured the line, and returned aboard to adorn my person again with wristwatch and spectacles. And that short interval of time was all that a small Cuban boy required to make the quarter mile from shore to head of dock. Hey, he cried, panting and gasping from his rapid running, Charco, malo, and he made the gesture of diving and swimming. From his haste and worried expression as much as from his words, I gathered that it was unhealthy to swim in those parts, and although subsequently we grounded the yawl and cleaned her sides in shoal water, that was reasonably thickly populated with small, friendly hammerheads. I never again played the role of water spaniel in deep water. The Stupid Mosquito I was on the point of remarking that, just as I have never seen a man being nibbled by a shark, I have never seen a tropical mosquito thirst for human blood, but my reference to Los Indios reminds me that during our stay there, we had a visitation from the Little Pests. After washing the hippocampus' sides, we sought advice from the port officer, the collector of customs, the health inspector, the dock foreman, the steamship agent and the mayor of Los Indios concerning the depth of water over the bar of the Indian River. He said there were six feet of water, and we believed him until we ran aground in four and a half feet. It was then that the mosquitoes descended on us and demanded our life's blood. But presently, when the tide had lifted six inches, we cedged off and anchored half a mile from shore. Those stupid mosquitoes returned to the jungle to feast on crocodile hide and never again molested us during our stay in Los Indios. For 15 minutes in Bahia, Honda, on the north coast of Cuba, and for one night in Garton Lake, Panama, we were also bothered by mosquitoes. But on no other occasion after leaving Florida did we have the slightest need for screens or citronella. On my return home last autumn, I met a man who had spent the summer almost as far north of New York as I had been south. And he told me that well within the Arctic circle, he wore gloves, veil and canvas leggings and was nearly eaten alive by mosquitoes. There's a contrast for you. The menace of hurricanes. When we put hippocampus out of commission in Panama and Squibb and Chambers embarked for Point south. I secured passage as a deckhand aboard a Panama liner and worked my way north. And I worked. I learned the weight of a holly stone as I never did in my hitch in the navy, and in eight days I sujiwujied enough paintwork to qualify me as a first-class paintwasher extraordinaire. But that's an aside from the point. After four o'clock of each day, we foremast hands were permitted to amuse ourselves, and as my chronometer, sextant and books were in the safe keeping of the captain, I used to wander up to the bridge and do a little unofficial navigating. On the afternoon that we approached the town of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the third mate with whom I was talking looked aloft and said there was trouble brewing. I looked up too, and all I saw were a few ragged clouds with the same suggestion of pink on their edges that I had seen any number of times during the preceding three months. Being sane, if not weather-wise, I stifled the impulse to say that the sky looked fine to me. The next afternoon... I read in my bunk after knocking off time and I was surprised to hear some of the crew talking at supper of having sighted Cape Macy, the western end of Cuba, at a distance of about six miles. Now I knew that our course was carrying us fully 20 miles from Cape Macy and I questioned one of the men with some particularity about what he had seen. He had made out, he said, a lighthouse as plain as the nose on his face, he had that kind of nose, and had seen individual trees, and he supposed that for some reason the old man had changed course. That didn't seem reasonable to me, and I was thoroughly mystified when, observing that the third mate was again on watch, I climbed to the bridge for information. Hello, he said. Remarkably clear weather we're having. I sighted the tip of the mountain on Cape de Marie a little while ago, and that's fully a 100 miles off. I looked at the third mate, and he looked at me, and I understood why Cape Macy had seemed to the crew only six miles away. Just then the radio man came forward with a message from the captain, And that message read, Hurricane reported from Trinidad moving west-northwest across the Caribbean. As that was as near as I came to the only hurricane that swept through the West Indies in 1921, I cannot qualify as an expert in hurricanes. The ship was well out of its track and we felt only the mighty roll that it sent out hundreds of miles in all directions. For two days, the deck stewards were fairly busy with the passengers and then the sea flattened out as the disturbance passed away the next time I see a certain particular effect of clouds and light which is followed by a period of extremely high visibility, I'll know better than to doubt the word of an old-timer who tells me that there's trouble brewing. The fly in the ointment. The menace of the hurricane is the only fly in the ointment of summer cruising in the Caribbean. Everything else you can get used to, calms, squalls, and even water spouts, but you can't laugh away a big twister. I believe implicitly the words of a succession of sea captains that it is only by a miracle that a small boat will live through a hurricane gales these wise old dogs of the sea tell me are nothing to snivel over and the smaller you are down to a certain limit the better your chance of coming through unharmed although the sea builds up into mighty mountains the waves move in a steady procession and you can easily live through the chop that rides them but in a hurricane The wind not only blows with a force sufficient to rip iron hatch covers loose from their fastenings, but the sea comes in from all directions and piles up in a smother that will swamp even the tiniest small boat. Nevertheless, I am less frightened of hurricanes now than I was before I knew a solitary thing about them. In my guileless, unarithmetical way, I used to read on the pilot charts that says 6% of hurricanes occur in the Caribbean in July – and 12%, or whatever it is, in August, and so on, and somehow I had a picture of six hurricanes waltzing across Jamaica in every seventh month of every year. But bless me, that is not at all the case. They haven't had a hurricane in Jamaica for five or six years, and there are thousands of little Caribbean children running around naked who have never even heard of one. If I say, as I should have said much earlier in this chapter, that the Caribbean is the best, the most satisfactory cruising ground that I've ever struck from the points of view of temperature, scenery, freedom from inclement weather, and absence of insects. Wouldn't you cruise there in summer on the off chance that no hurricane would hit you? I don't say that the menace of the hurricane ever leaves you. You're aware of it waking and sleeping, and when American consuls and other weather sharps tell you wisely that a perfectly well-behaved, gentlemanly sort of day looks hurricaney you have to restrain the impulse to do murder. But I have never yet heard of a yachtsman say that the mere awareness of possible danger detracted from his enjoyment of the moment's pleasure. Living in the vicinity of hurricanes, you get used to them, just as a city man gets used to mail trucks and taxis, and neither the sailor nor the city man wears a mourning band around his sleeve because he may get picked off at any minute. Besides all of which, News of hurricanes always comes by radio at least two days in advance, and it's surprising how far inland you can run in 48 hours. The Indispensable Motor I started this chapter with the intention of telling what I have learned about sailing during a voyage of three or 4,000 miles, and it has taken me right to the end of the space to say that I don't know much about it. When we started from New York and ran into our worst weather almost immediately – I knew less than nothing about handling a yawl, and if it hadn't been for the skill of chambers we would probably have ended the cruise there and then. But by force of example and under the buffeting of experience I did pick up a trick or two, and I think now as I thought when I was shrouded in abysmal ignorance that sailing a small boat is easy. Of course, the power that you pack away in your auxiliary engine is what makes it easy. I used to be a motorboat man, pure and simple, but more or less pure and fairly simple. Now I am a sailboat man from the word go, but I am a motoring sailboat man. And when the wind dies and I find myself drifting stern first toward a rocky ledge, I start the engine and get away from there. Similarly, when it was proved by experiment that Chambers, excellent sailor that he is, endangered both Hippocampus and the Port of Havana by making a landing under sail, we doused canvas and startled the natives with our skill as motorboat men. So if all hands will follow my twofold double acting advice of never putting to sea in a motorboat that is unequipped with sail or in a sailboat that has no auxiliary engine, there'll be no blood on my head. The end. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mates level, And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.